Welcome to the coronavirus market update. It is Saturday, June 6th, the anniversary of D-Day. It certainly was not a D-Day in the markets yesterday, and it certainly wasn't a D-Day for jobs. It was a shocking jobs report. And if you want to read all about it, I wrote about it on the blog, so you can go to jillonmoney.com. But let me just say, every economist was saying we we're going to see job losses, anywhere from three to 10 million jobs coming off the U.S. payrolls. And as it turns out, the economy added, added, my friends, two and a half million jobs in May. Okay, next, unemployment rate, it dropped. That was shocking, by the way because the April rate was 14.7%, it dropped to 13.3%. Before you get so excited, the Labor Department itself says that maybe there's some problems in the way that we ask people about whether or not they're employed and how they would be employed and whether they're counted as employed. Labor Department at the end of the report says that we could have seen the overall unemployment rate be about three percentage points higher than reported if they got all that counting right. But let's be clear. This is good news. It is really absolutely unabashed good news. But it doesn't take away from the fact that there is still about 20 million Americans out of work. And I don't want to sugarcoat that. That is really bad news. So it's likely that maybe the worst of it is April, but it's going to be a long slog forward. That's why I want everyone to just be very clear. That's where we are in the economy. Meanwhile, stocks jumped. You know, stocks have had an enormous run, more than 40% move higher from the March 23rd lows. And so we thought that this was a perfect time to bring in friend of the pod, Michael Goodman. He's the president of Wealthstream Advisors to talk about the importance of a game plan and actually the value of what a financial advisor, a good financial advisor can bring to the table. So I hope you enjoy this. We're going to have a two-parter. Tomorrow, we'll actually talk about some of the really cool things that can happen during crazy times and maybe some positive financial outcomes for you all. Here is the first part of our interview with Michael Goodman of Wellstream Advisors. Here we are. We're talking to you three months into this. How has this been for you and for Wellstream Advisors? Tell us what it was like in the beginning when markets were cratering in the month of March. Were you overwhelmed with people freaking out? You know, it was difficult. There's no question about that. I would say that we weren't overwhelmed on an inbound basis. Uh, we took great efforts to be outbound ahead of that. We were reaching out to clients aggressively over uh, a long period of time. Our goal, have learned from prior crises, is to be very communicative with our clients and to reach out to them in a proactive manner. So tell us about what kinds of people, when you, they were calling, what, what were some of their concerns? In other words, I'm wondering, from our perspective, we had a humongous increase in the number of inbound emails that we received. And I could almost put them in some buckets. Obviously, we had people who were just freaked out and scared. But there were also a lot of people who seemed to be really freaked out by um, the amount of risk that they themselves chose to take and wanted to know whether to do something different. How did your more aggressive investors fare through this? Were they worried or was it some other type that was worried? The majority of the in aggressively invested clients were pretty good. They were mostly true to their risk tolerance. Matter of fact, 
Some of them wanted to rebalance at this time, sell bonds, buy stocks. Some of them that might have had some cash on the sidelines wanted to invest. And that was, I would think, for the aggressive investors, more of the predominant response. Move down into like your generalized growth investor. Let's say uh, you would call that, say, a 70-30 investor is a growth investor, 70 risky, 30 not so risky. Yeah, even even a 60-40, you know, might be might have a growth mindset for sure, as opposed to sort of a mod- more moderate mentality. This came down a lot to two factors. First, of course, yes, risk tolerance. What I find also, though, is it's proximity to reality. And, and what I mean by that is we are all so greatly influenced by what our anecdotal experiences are on a day-to-day basis. So, for example, if this person had a buddy who was a dr- uh, owned a dry cleaning business and that dry cleaner was completely shut down because nobody was going to the dry cleaner or a restaurant, for example, this person was much more panicked, much more concerned than another person who had an anecdotal experience of somebody who was in a business that continued on with no problem and had some friends or experiences where everybody was healthy and this wasn't an issue. So trying to get people to back away from those anecdotal day-to-day experiences into the bigger picture was really the goal and to really understand what the challenge was on a personal financial basis. It's interesting though, because I would imagine, I'm, I'm asking you this question, but you have such a different way of approaching someone's financial life in that, you know, with your training, you take a holistic approach, which means you do planning. So I'm wondering if this is not a case of the wrong pool of people, right? Because I know that what you do for your clients is you prepare a plan. And I imagine that if someone has a plan, that that person probably has a mindset of, I'm in it for the long term. I know what the numbers are. I know that I'm, they're going to be losing years. So I wonder what you might be hearing from others, because I know you have other friends in the industry, and what you imagine people who don't have a plan, how they are feeling. Maybe the insecurity pops up if you actually don't have a plan to fall back on. What I'd like to say is, while it's true that if you have a plan and you can focus on that plan and keep your eye on the long-term plan, it is easier to get through a period like this. But let me tell you, there are many people that have a plan that cannot stick to it. They way overestimate the impact of the short-term and way underestimate the power of the long haul, and they abandon plans quickly in, in some instances. Whether or not I was able to get people, or my team was able to get people to focus on their plans was not always relevant, uh, mm-hmm. especially especially in a crisis like this where it's not just a financial crisis. There, were, there was a lot of emotion around health and well-being, and it was harder in this environment to get people to realize that. How was going through this experience over the last three months, how does that compare to being a certified financial planner uh, during the Great Recession? So far, can you tell us how your personal experience in running your business and dealing with your clients, how is it different than what we saw back in 2008 and 2009? It was very different for me for two reasons. One is working with clients in this period, and two is managing a company of people. I have a lot more people on our team than I did back then. So 
working with clients, like I say, the, the big difference here is that it was health issues. And it wasn't just like, okay, there's a financial crisis. The government's going to make sure that we're good and it'll work out. People don't know in a health crisis to the extent of how far it's going to go and where it's going to go, how many people are going to get sick, what's going to happen, how long will it be shut down, et cetera. There was a lot of unknowns and it was a much more difficult time period to, to keep people grounded. And what about you just in terms of you know working from home, managing a business? What, what do you want to take out of this period that might be a change to how you conduct your own business? There's probably two, two or three parts to that. The first thing I would say is, is the obvious one, and that's technology, right? So fortunately for us, we've invested in a lot of technology for different reasons, not at, at the expectation of having to work uh, under COVID. But I have had the unfortunate experience of being dislocated from my physical space through 9-11, uh, the Hurricane Sandy. So we, we were kind of preparing for that. But more importantly is how critical culture and communication and teamwork is. And what I learned is that the seeds that we laid in the prior years of building a team of people that not only are competent and capable, but work well together uh, by uh, empowering them to work together on projects and create that cultural vibe is what really kept us going. The team was genuinely concerned for each other and genuinely, genuinely wanted to help each other out challenge I see going forward is we can maintain a culture now. It is hard to build on this culture in this remote way. So how do you, how do you plan to do that? I mean, what do you feel like any advisor needs to personally meet with a client face-to-face anymore? Is that something that's going out the window, do you think? There are very successful practices that operate in only a remote fashion. So I would say that that's possible. We have clients all over the country that we don't see very often, if at all. However, there are people that just have a communication style that requires in-person discussions. And there are also elements of what we do that are so deeply personal that are more effective in a room where nonverbal communication can really be felt. And this is an example, though, where teaching young people about how to become great advisors can't really happen remotely, in my opinion. The opportunity for a young advisor to sit in a room and feel the nonverbal communication and to see the client as you go through some of these discussions is critical in their development. Hmm, that's so interesting because um, we interviewed Dan Roth from LinkedIn. He's the editor in chief of LinkedIn, and he was talking about how, you know, there were certain aspects of just you know sort of roaming through a hallway where people glean a lot of information. And you're saying actually the specific training, especially of someone who is a financial advisor, is really important and probably does need to be reinforced in a in a physical way, right? No doubt about it. No doubt about it. I, I completely agree with that. I'm, I'm all an advocate for using technology. I'm grateful for that there's things like telemedicine and other elements. And these are great substitutes, let's say, or supportive complements to the real thing. But to me, especially for certain types of clients uh, and certain topics, there's nothing like being in the same room. 
Let's talk a little bit about the another aspect of this crisis that I think is quite fascinating, and that is that we have been hearing from many people who are saying, wow, I just realized that I'm paying 1% for somebody who is not really providing a lot of value. And gosh, I wish I had that 1% that went to my bottom line instead of paying him or her for not doing much. So let's talk a little bit about what you can learn during a crisis as a client about your advisor or your salesperson. What should people be focused on? Because they're obviously they're going to get their quarterly statements, right? So they're going to say, okay, first quarter was horrible. I got that. They're going to get their second quarter statement. It's going to be a lot better. What should they be looking for as a way to understand whether or not they are getting what they pay for? Well, I think the most important thing is the communication. And that's the one of the best ways to evaluate your advisor. How are they communicating to you? And I'm not talking about just making you feel better or giving you some wonky communication about the markets and making you feel like it's going to work out because they're smarter than I am. I'm talking about getting off the phone and saying, my advisor gets me. They understand me. They know what I'm trying to do or where I want to go, and I believe they have my best interests in helping me get there, and they understand my concerns, and I feel like having them in the uh, pilot seat is going to give me a better chance of getting there. Let's say that there's a, a someone's listening, and they're managing their own money. Maybe the other side of this is, holy smokes, I really wish I did have somebody like that. Vanguard just unveiled a pretty amazing robo with pretty rich tools as well. Uh, What do you say to people who want to take the interim step of saying, I don't want to do it myself. I want to put it on autopilot. What's your view of robo or online advisors? Look, I think there's a lot of solutions out there. And I would never argue that one solution uh, is the only solution for everybody. I think that it really depends on your situation, your penchant uh, for digging into the details and understanding what it is you you need and want, and your objectivity. Uh, It's really important to be able to be objective. There are a lot of people that probably made some bad decisions uh, emotionally based during this time and might regret them going forward. And frankly, more importantly, are some of the technical elements. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of changes in tax law this year and in opportunities in these markets that have nothing to do with how you're invested or your emotional risk tolerance, et cetera, but some basic things that you could be doing to increase your rate of return. Okay. So tell us. Yeah. So classic example is tax loss harvesting, right? Which is a fancy term for basically saying, I'm going to sell investment A because it's down. I'm going to register that tax loss and I'm going to buy investment B that is kind of like A, but not the same to keep me invested. I'm not trying to market time here, but I am trying to register that tax loss and I can offset other gains in this year and going forward with those losses. That's the classic example, number one. Okay. Number two? Number two would be a gift that the government gave us, which I'm still kind of trying to figure out why, but they told <laughs> us that we don't have, don't have to take out our required minimum distributions for people that have IRAs and that are older uh, or retirement plans. Hold yeah. on. Let's talk about that for a second. So this sure. year, you don't have to take your required minimum distribution. Um, And you won't have to double up next year because that's what a lot of people thought at first. Like, well, big deal. I don't do it this year. Then I have to do it next year. But that's not the case. It's as if this year didn't happen, correct? That's right. So now I want to know, 
should should everyone just forego that required minimum distribution? No, I don't think it's a knee-jerk reaction like that. I think you need to think it through. First of all, just for the record, more than three quarters of the people from the things that I've read need their RMDs to live on. So let's be honest that most people are going to need to take those RMDs anyway. But if you don't have to, you should think about that. And it gets a little complicated now as to the various things you need to consider to make that decision. The first one is if you're married, then I'm more inclined to say don't take it if you don't need it because your spouse can inherit your IRA and maintain that same distribution plan over time. What happened earlier in the year in the the tax law that was passed before COVID was that when you pass away and you leave your IRA to a non-spouse beneficiary, that beneficiary is going to need to take the distributions within 10 years. It could take it equally or or various amounts, but it's going to have to all come out in the 10th or 11th year. What's really important to think about is what tax bracket will your beneficiaries be in those years? And in some instances, it might be much higher because those beneficiaries might very well be in their peak earning years and they might now have this additional income. So you have to figure factor that in as well. But so much of this is like, well, you have to know what, where do you think tax rates are going to be? You have to know when you're going to die. And I mean, it seems so difficult. So is there any generalized rule of thumb? If you really want to go general rule of thumb and you don't need it, you're probably better off not taking it, probably. But I really do think you do need to think through some of these other scenarios if you want to maximize the opportunity because tax rates are going to be higher in the future. There's no question about how else are we going to pay for the trillions and trillions of dollars that the government's been pumping into the economy. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget, wash your hands, wear your masks, maintain your social distancing, and please remember to lift someone up. Maybe you were able to lift somebody up by listening to Michael Goodman. Thanks to Michael for joining us. Oh, and by the way, thanks to Michael's brother, Joel, who composes our music And always a huge thank you to Mark Talercio, the best executive producer ever. We're distributed by Cadence 13. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.